And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing pretty good. You want to know why? Why? It's episode 50! Yeah! It's our 50th episode, which means we've been doing this for a year. Yeah, if you count all the bonus episodes and such. Yeah, we've been doing this for 52 weeks. Yeah. Which is a year. Yeah. It's been a terrifying ride. Um, I mean, not really. <laughs> it's been a fun ride. Yeah. What are we watching today, Ben? Uh, today we're watching our first real <laughs> werewolf movie. Our first werewolf movie with an actual werewolf in it. Because we have been burned before. Yes. Well, you know what they say, um, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Yes, that is a saying. Yeah. So uh, we're watching Werewolf of London from 1935. And, you know, it is our first werewolf movie, um, which is kind of surprising when you think of how... Many um, films. We've done a whole year of horror films. Yeah, exactly. Like, we've covered horror from 1895 to 1935. And, uh, you know, werewolves are pretty... Considered, I think, a pretty big staple of the horror genre right? Yeah. And this is like our first time running into one. And so I thought it'd be interesting to know a bit about like culturally where werewolves were sitting in 1935 in terms of what the cultural attitudes maybe is the wrong word. Uh, what the cultural knowledge, <laughs> what the cultural knowledge of werewolves was leading up to this movie, I guess. Yeah, the previous episode that we keep referring to that isn't really a werewolf film is Wolf Blood. Uh, that's episode 15, if you want to go listen to it. And when we talked about wolf blood, I went into the myths around specifically the Lugaru, which is like a werewolf, but it's very specific to French-Canadian myths, um, but kind of more the, the French diaspora myths with like the Rougarou in New Orleans mm -hmm. and places like that, Louisiana. So today it's kind of more focused... It's just not as focused, I guess you could say. It's kind of more focused on, like, European understandings of the werewolf. Yeah, more general overview. Mm-hmm. The oldest mention of a werewolf in literature comes with the Roman myth of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Is that what the Metamorphoses in the title of that work is? Is it some dude turning into a werewolf? <laughs> I mean, you could make the case for it, but Ovid's Metamorphoses is actually pretty huge. Yeah, I, I know. And the mention of the werewolf, as I'll be calling it, is um, just like part of one chapter out of this entire thing. Okay. This chapter tells about King Lycaum, who decides to test whether Jupiter, Zeus, is actually all-knowing. Okay. So, you know, Jupiter comes over for dinner, and the king serves him human flesh. And Jupiter is like, what the fuck, dude? I know what you are doing. And his punishment turns the king into a wolf. So this is kind of notable because the Latin word lycaum, the king's name, is the origin of the word lycanthrope. Oh, okay. I always wondered about that because, like, 
The throp part of lycanthrope makes sense in Latin when you look at other words like um, misanthrope and, and so on to mean mm-hmm. like uh, human or man. But the lichen part never made a lot of sense to me because it has nothing to do with the Latin word for wolf, which is lupus. Yeah, lupinthrope. Yeah, you'd think it would be <laughs> lupinthrope for a man, who, like a wolf man. Yeah. But it's lycanthrope. Okay, so it comes from this guy's name. Yeah. Now, this guy, it's just a guy being turned into a wolf. He doesn't go back and forth. Yeah. Um, but this is why this is notable. Mm-hmm. The idea of men turning into wolves, werewolves, appeared again in Petronius's Satyricon, uh, which was like the late first century mm-hmm. again. That's kind of the literary origins. And the idea of a werewolf doesn't come up again in fiction until uh, the 12th century in France with Marie de France's short narrative, Beast Clavre. Okay. Which tells of a man who vanishes for three days each week to turn into a wolf. Now, this is interesting because he transforms back and forth, but he needs his human clothes in order to turn back into human. That's interesting. So he must not be, like, ripping and tearing through them when he transforms. No, he, he like, put them back takes up. them off, folds them nicely, puts them in a safe place. Right. And then turns into a wolf and runs off and comes back. And then, like, right, puts and then, the clothes back on and then turns back. Right. Sort of like Spider-Man leaving his clothes in, like, an alleyway. <laughs> he can only return from a spider if he has the clothes. So there is a word for werewolf at this point. The very old French root is garou, but uh, the Norman French word, because of the 12th century thing, is garwolf. Okay. Probably not pronouncing that correctly. But Marie de France uses the Breton term with bisclavre. Okay. And also what's interesting is, like, she she changes the Breton term to fit this noun. Mm. And I, I find that really interesting because that could be just to differentiate this particular werewolf. You know, we're talking about capital W werewolf rather than werewolves in general. Um, but it could also indicate this addition to the myth of turning back and forth rather than just a general werewolf of guy turns into wolf and he he's a the wolf. End, yeah, end of story, yeah. Yeah. If you guys are really interested in seeing the the long list of werewolf fiction, uh, Wikipedia has a pretty good list. Um, and despite the amount of entries on this list, not all of them describe the werewolf as we know it of a guy turning into a wolf back and forth. For example, Alexander Dumas's The Wolf Leader from 1857 is included on the list, but it is about a guy who makes a deal with this wolf spirit so he can control wolves. Okay, sure. Well, I mean, I think the thing we're seeing is that, like, the rules weren't pinned down. Definitely. And what's also interesting is many entries on this list are short stories Mm. or are part of a collection of various myths and legends. So a retelling of these oral myths. Mm -hmm. Hence why also things aren't really set. Now, the first documented case of a werewolf sighting was in Germany, 1589. Well, that makes sense because it's a a German word. Mm -hmm. Because of this sighting, a pamphlet was distributed by people claiming to have witnessed the transformation. In this particular case, the werewolf turned out to be a man named Peter Stubb. And, you know, he had committed several murders and was executed as punishment, but there's no real evidence as to whether he was a werewolf. Sure. (laughs) In trying to rationalize where these werewolf myths come from, 
Um, like in the Wolf Blood episode with the Luguru, I talked about how it was rationalized as a way of like making sure people stayed with the church. Right. The Catholic Church, yeah, to be I rem- specific. I remember that. Um, if you don't go to services on Easter Sunday, you're probably a werewolf. Right. With European werewolf myths, there's a bit of overlap with that, but it does seem to mainly come from the idea of that dual nature of man. Sure. Um, with wolves, you know, there's the idea that they have the alpha male, which is actually incorrect. Look into it. And, and people kind of returning to that wild animalistic side. But perhaps an even bigger influence is that this is continental Europe, where there are slash were huge populations of wolves in the wild. Yeah, like you can see that like medieval European culture was pretty like wolf focused in general, (laughs) just by like how many times the big bad wolf shows up in like any given fairy tale. Yeah. Right? Like you're just like expect, like it, it just seems from their culture that it was expected that if you went out into the woods, a wolf was just going to eat you. That was just, like, normal. (laughs) Our hands were tied. You went into the woods. Yeah, exactly. What did you want us to do? (laughs) So I did a bit of research about European wolves, and I focused on the Eurasian wolf, because that's the largest of the grey wolves in Europe. They were fairly bulky. Uh, The more east you went in Europe, the bulkier they were, because the harder the land, I guess. Mm. Um, But they are actually more slender in a physical build than the North American wolf. Okay. Countries across Europe encouraged extermination of wolves um, because of the potential threat they had to humans, um, but also with expanding human territory into the wolves' ecosystem, as you can kind of see still today with, like, any kind of animal going extinct as, you know, we expand our borders. Well, and, like, even if the wolves weren't eating humans directly, like, they're a threat to livestock, to all that other kind of stuff that you need to support human life. Definitely. And these extermination efforts are documented as early as the Middle Ages to up to the late 19th century. The wolf went extinct in England in 1680, and that trend kind of goes along Europe as you go east. Um, But the wolves were never completely controlled in Eastern Europe because of very dense forests. Right. Uh, And I think that's interesting because we always think of Eastern Europe as, like, where vampires and werewolves come from. Sure. So while wolves are a danger to humans, most attacks were to defend a food source or territory. There were occasional reports of wolves attacking small children for food or, you know, you're alone in a forest, they see you as a type of prey. Mm -hmm. But most attacks come from rabid wolves. Sure. The behavior of a rabid wolf is to typically act alone Um, They'll bite people and animals as they go wandering along, um, but not to eat. You know, they'll just attack and and run away. Can you get rabies if you're bitten by a rabid wolf? Yes. Sure. Yeah. Rabid wolves attack randomly um, rather than, you know, a predatory attack where there'd be, like, stalking and tracking involved. From this historian named Jean-Marc Morisot, looked at the historical records of wolf attacks in specifically France from 1362 to 1918, and there were around 7,600 people killed by wolves, with about half of that from rabid wolves. Right, so they're getting bit and then dying of the of the disease they've caught more than they're getting, like, eaten. Yeah, you could be attacked and just, like, 
in the attack, you know, it's brutal enough to kill you. But they're not sticking around to eat you. Sure, yeah. And I mean, like, you know, if you've got a really bad wolf bite and a huge wound open to the air, it's not like medieval medicine's going to do a great job patching you up. Yeah. Now, as far as, like, the symptoms of an animal with rabies, um, I looked at rabid dogs. Mm -hmm. And they tend to be irritable and aggressive. They'll bite at anything that comes nearby. Um, There's that stereotypical foamy mouth. Uh, because the amount of saliva that's generated, coupled with the paralysis of throat and jaw muscles. And uh, they are hypersensitive to touch, light, and sound. Okay. In people, it's kind of a similar experience of symptoms, uh, with the added fear of water, which is... That's odd. Yeah, it's odd. But then there's also anxiety, paranoia, terror, hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And you're going to die. (laughs) Yes, yeah, for sure. You maybe have a right to be paranoid. (laughs) So in looking at the historical records of rabid wolves, or wolf attacks in general, there were a ton of rabid wolf attacks reported, specifically in Germany, after the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century. Throughout recorded attacks across continental Europe, kind of going westward all the way to France, these recorded attacks are very characteristic of a rabid wolf attack. These reports lessened once wolves were largely exterminated, but I think that fear of wolves persisted through werewolf fiction. Sure. Now, the most recent piece of literature before this film's release is the 1933 publication of The Werewolf of Paris (laughs) by Guy Andor, and this novel is as much horror fiction as it is historical fiction, as it follows the werewolf Bertrand Cahiers, through the Franco-Prussian War to the Paris Commune in 1870-71. to Interesting. Mm-hmm. What's kind of neat about this novel is Bertrand, the werewolf, <laughs> turns back and forth from human to wolf, and he can avoid these transformations by sucking human blood. Weird. Yeah. At the end of the novel, his crimes are found out, and he's sent to an asylum where he commits suicide. The novel was a New York Times number one bestseller in 1933 and is considered the werewolf fiction novel in the same way that Dracula is the vampire fiction novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we last saw Guy Indoor. Guy? Is it Guy? I think it's Guy because he's not French. Guy is the French pronunciation. Sure. We last heard of Guy Indoor uh, with last week's episode, Mark of the Vampire. And despite Guy working in Hollywood and also this film's similar title to his novel, Werewolf of Paris, uh, I think this movie has little to do with that novel. Right, Ben? Yeah. So, Werewolf of Paris had been a big hit as a novel. And, uh, like we said last week, Guy Andor had gone to Hollywood and become a Hollywood screenwriter and wrote Mark of the Vampire and stuff. But he was working over at MGM, and this is a universal film. And Werewolf of London is kind of an oddity in the universal horror stable. I think it's likely that the title was chosen because it does call to mind Werewolf of Paris, but it it has no relation Mm -hmm. to Werewolf of Paris. In the same way that when you first said that we were watching the film, I thought uh, the title was An American Werewolf in London. Well, that movie's title is a reference to this movie. Exactly, right? Like, it's referencing, but it's not actually adapting. Yes. Yeah, that movie's 
title is a joke on there was a famous movie called An American in London and then Werewolf of London becoming an American werewolf in London. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think this was an attempt to associate it with the public's mind without actually doing an adaptation of Werewolf of Paris. Its cast and crew were for the most part newcomers to universal horror. If not newcomers for, to Universal, they were all kind of studio people. They just weren't the people that the studio had making its other horror movies. Is that why it's kind of an outlier? Yeah, definitely. Its take on werewolf lore is largely a unique one as well. Uh, again, showing how little of the mythos was sort of culturally set at this point. You know, you're talking about Werewolf of Paris in 1933 and how it was a big hit and how it was the werewolf novel, and yet even there, like, idea of, you know, he can kind of turn back and forth, but in order to prevent the transformations he has to drink human blood, like, that's, that's not quite... It's like a werewolf and a vampire had a baby. Yeah, it's not quite what we think of culturally today as being a werewolf. And what we see in this movie isn't really what we'd think of today either. Mm. Carl Emily kind of commissioned this movie as a quick follow-up to Bride of Frankenstein, which had been a hit. The film is directed by Stuart Walker, a 47-year-old ex-theater director who had ran a repertory company from 1915 to 1929. Walker became a screenwriter in 1930 before transitioning to directing in 1931. Werewolf of London would be his 11th film uh, that he made as a director, coming after two literary adaptations for Universal, 1934's Great Expectations and 1935's Mystery of Edwin Drood. Walker would direct one more film for Universal in 1935 before accepting a position at Paramount Pictures as a producer, where he would work until his death in 1941. For Walker, Werewolf of London was kind of just another assignment in his career as a director for Universal. Mm -hmm. The film's screenplay was written by John Colton from a story by Robert Harris, and bears its closest resemblance to uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as source material. That makes sense. The dual nature of man kind of idea with werewolves. Exactly. Colton was the son of a U.S. diplomat who lived the first 14 years of his life in Japan. He gained success as a playwright in the 1920s, writing plays about Americans living in exotic locales. Hmm. He became an intertitle writer for silent movies in the late 1920s, and then a sort of full-on screenwriter when the sound era came in. Colton was a friend of Irving Thalberg of MGM, uh, whose studio fixers worked to help conceal Colton's homosexuality, as well as using him as a beard for lesbian actresses. The film's cinematographer is Charles Stumar, who we last saw shooting The Mummy in 1932 for Carl Freund, and before that had shot Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923. He was basically a reliable studio cinematographer working in all genres for Universal. Mm -hmm. um, not specifically a horror cinematographer, though he did have that earlier experience with The Mummy. Starring in Werewolf of London is Henry Hull. Hull was born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1890, and in addition to an acclaimed Broadway career, he appeared in 74 films over the course of his career from 1917 to 1966. Wow, good for him. Yeah, Werewolf of London was his 19th 
film in his career, and he had previously appeared in the 1934 version of Great Expectations from the same director in the role of Abel Magwitch. Co-starring with Hull in this film is Warner Oland, who is probably most famous as one of the many actors to have portrayed Chinese detective Charlie Chan. Born Johan Werner Oland in Sweden in 1879, he immigrated with his family to the United States at age 13. He began acting on stage in 1906 and made his first film appearance in 1912. Despite possessing no Asian background, he was frequently cast as East Asian characters, including four appearances as Fu Manchu between 1929 and 1931. Oland was cinema's second Fu Manchu before the role was then taken over by Boris Karloff after him. Oland's biggest success, however, was as Charlie Chan. He was the fourth actor to portray the Chinese detective, the character had originated in novels and had been adapted three times, twice with Japanese actors and once with a Korean actor. But it was only when Olin played the character that these films started to become popular and successful. Mm. Um, and he ended up starring in 16 Charlie Chan films from 1931 to 1938. And then the series would go on for 29 more entries after that. Never with an Asian actor playing Chan. Good job, Hollywood. Oland was seven films deep into his Chan career when he appeared in Werewolf of London. Uh, and in this film, he plays a Tibetan character. The film's romantic lead is Valerie Hobson, who we just saw in Bride of Frankenstein. She plays Henry Hull's character's wife. She is 27 years younger than Henry Hull. This would be her final universal horror film, uh, her career moving on to more respectable genres after this. Horror's respectable. No. <laughs> I respect it. <laughs> However, uh, not everyone making the film was sort of a horror neophyte. The film's visual effects are by John Fulton, whose work we've seen in Bride of Frankenstein and Invisible Man. And of course, its makeup, naturally, is by... Jack Pierce. Mm -hmm. Pierce initially designed a fairly extreme makeup for the film that would cover most of Hull's features, uh, but Hull argued that the script indicated that his character was still recognizable to others in his wolf form, and so should have a makeup that left most of his face intact. It also helped that Hull didn't like sitting in the makeup chair for the hours and hours and hours it <laughs> took to apply the original design, so this helped cut that down quite significantly. Pierce resisted this suggestion, so Hull instead went uh, to Carl Lemley, who agreed to back the actor over the makeup artist, much to Pierce's chagrin. The design that ended up getting used is this sort of more subtle makeup design. <laughs> the initial design for this film would not go to waste, as it would later form the basis of the werewolf makeup for 1940's The Wolfman. Okay, cool. So Werewolf of London was released on May 13th, 1935. Critical reception was mixed. Uh, there was some praise for the film's grisly details, <laughs> um, but also critique that it was too similar to 1931's Jekyll and Hyde. Ultimately, it was a failure at the box office. It cost $195,000 to make, and 
it, it flopped. It did not make its money back. Oh, no. Which sort of put Universal off any further werewolf endeavors for quite some time. But not horror. No. Okay. Just maybe not werewolves. Okay. It'll be interesting to see with this film because Jekyll and Hyde is our number one film. Sure, it has been for quite some time now. Yeah, for four years. And and a large number of episodes. So uh, today, Werewolf of London is available on DVD as part of Universal's Legacy Collection uh, alongside the studio's other werewolf pictures. And you can also see it on its own to stream on the PlayStation, Microsoft, and iTunes stores. So while it's not on the YouTube playlist, you can still check out our website at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You'll be hearing a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after watching Werewolf of London from 1935. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Werewolf of London from 1935. Ben, what year is it? Well, this time it might be Victorian or Edwardian, like turn of the century, but they do have like 1930s cars and telephones. Yeah, so it's like maybe contemporary 1935, but like... But Henry Hull wears a stiff neck collar and a piznez and a fully buttoned up morning coat to breakfast. But it's England, right? That's just what everyone wears? <laughs> According to the people who made this movie, at least. Yeah, you had to be sure that it was set in England. It's in the title. Right. We got that. Yeah. They mentioned the Thames several times. Yep, and everybody's got an amusing accent, and they all talk a lot with them. Yeah. Do you want to talk a lot and tell us the summary? Sure. Is that a mean segue? <laughs> I'm sorry, but do please give us the summary. So, we begin at Vasquez Rocks, site of the immortal battle between Captain Kirk and the Gorn. <laughs> or, as this film would like you to believe, the mountains of Tibet. Dr. Wilfred Glendon and a second character who never appears again in the movie are on a expedition in the Tibetan mountains, and their coolies won't go any further with them because they believe that the valley they're headed into has, you know, demons and stuff in it, a superstition that's explained to them by a random passing Catholic priest missionary. There's a lot of unnecessary extra characters in this movie. The Screen Actors Guild was real happy with this production. <laughs> so, undeterred, Glendon and his friend journey into the valley anyway because they're in search of the Marifesa luminara lupina, I believe was the full name, a plant that blooms only in moonlight. The dude's a botanist. Yes, Glendon's a botanist. They eventually make it to where the plant is after some weird happenings, and Glendon is attacked by a large, hairy man. man with pointed ears and canine teeth and, like, a snout nose. A wolf man. Ah. Uh, Wrong movie. Right. A werewolf. He gets bit 
And then his attacker slinks off into the dark, as is common. Uh, or at least will be common in the future. I guess that's not really a trope yet. And uh, it doesn't matter, though, because Glendon gets his hands on the flower. He brings it back to London, and he's doing experiments on it where he's trying to get it to bloom indoors in his laboratory using, like, an artificial moonlight. And because he's a scientist in a 1930s Universal movie, his laboratory has weird electrical devices. Also, like, a video surveillance system? It's like a video phone. Is this movie set in 1890? Is it set in 1935? Or is it set in, like, 2018? Anyways, outside the lab, Glendon's wife, Valerie Hobson, who is 27 years younger than him, maybe not in the movie, but in real life, is... And it shows. Yeah, it really shows. Um, is out holding, like, a party for London's Botanical Society. Uh, and at this party, we get introduced to the litany of unnecessary characters in this movie. There's Glendon's wife, Lisa's aunt, Eddie, who's basically that sort of overly sociable, airheaded woman trope. There's also, most significantly, an old childhood friend of hers, Paul Ames, who used to date her, um, but she turned down his wedding proposal, so then he moved to California. And he aims to get at her again. Sure, yes. Good job, Sarah. <laughs> uh, so he's back. He's also the nephew of, like, the head of Scotland Yard, and there's, like, four or five other people. Significantly, there is a other botanist visiting from Tibet, a Dr. Yagami, who's also here, and he sort of takes Glendon aside at one point and says, like, hey, I hear you have some Marifaza flower. And the doctor's like, yeah, well, I won't show them to you. But you see, they ne they're needed to cure werewolfery. <laughs> there are two cases <laughs> in London. And, uh, you know, Glendon's like, well, that's silly. There's no such thing. And Yagami's like, Really? There's no such thing, huh? You know, you and I have met before in Tibet, huh? Grabs Glendon where he was bit. So he, No, he doesn't grab, he like gently strokes. Sure. So it's Either way, like, like Are you coming on to me? He's saying without saying, like, hey, I was the werewolf that bit you and you're a werewolf too, and if you give me these plants I can I can cure us. And Glendon's like, get out of my lab. I never want to see you again. I'm a big grumpy puss. Um, the other thing that's going on here is Glendon's, of course, the scientist who's always in his lab, never has time for his wife, never has time for social functions, which is why Paul Ames showing up again is very attractive to her. Glendon continues to work on the plants in his lab. He's not having much success getting them to bloom. Uh, he has three bulbs, and eventually he's only able to get two to bloom. There's another tea party at some later time that has all the same people at it, where Yagami again asks Glendon, like, hey, can I have the plants? And Glendon says no. It's at that tea party where Aunt Eddie decides she's going to invite everybody to a third party scene in this movie that's in the evening at her apartment. While Glendon's not looking, someone breaks into his lab and steals two out of three bulbs of Marifesa, the two that have bloomed. So, this is the first night of the full moon, and Glendon, of course, transforms into a werewolf. It's a pretty cool transformation scene. He basically, like, is walking by a series of columns, and each time he passes one, he's more and more transformed. Yeah. Um, and as we sort of said with the werewolf at the start, basically, he's got shaggy hair, pointy ears, 
a snout nose and canine teeth. He kind of looks a lot like maybe one of the um, Island of Dr. Moreau type dudes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, not as furry as Bela Lugosi in that movie, but right. kind of. Right. Now, the werewolf lore that gets established in this movie is that you transform at the full moon, that the Marifaza plant isn't exactly a cure, it's an antidote. So you have to take it every single night of the full moon if you don't want to transform. And if you do transform, you have to kill at least one person a night, or else you'll stay transformed uh, mm -hmm. forever. So, having transformed, Glendon has to go off and kill someone. One of the other things that Yagami told him was that the werewolf always seeks out to kill that which it loves the most. And yeah, it, it's just so weird that, like, Glendon knows that werewolves are real. He was attacked by one, and he tran he's transforming into one, and he still refuses to give the one guy who knows what's going on... The, the time thing. of day. Yeah, exactly. Anyways... He transforms into a werewolf um, and leaves the house to go off murdering people. Not without grabbing his hat and coat before leaving. So he looks like a Sherlock Holmes werewolf. Yeah, he's wearing like a... Um, like a hat and a little cape thing. Yes. He goes out into the night and meanwhile at Aunt Eddie's party, all of the characters are there. And that goes on for a long time. Uh, Aunt Eddie is too drunk, so they take her upstairs and put her in her bedroom to nap it off. They've been hearing howling all night, um, which, you know, it can't possibly be a wolf because there are no wolves in England. And so Werewolf Glendon makes his way to Eddie's place and breaks into her bedroom and scares her and then leaves. Yeah, it doesn't do anything. Yeah. Everybody comes up and is like, oh, what happened? And she sort of describes what happened and they're like, oh... We get it. You're super drunk and seeing things because nothing happened here. We'll just, you know, close all the doors and go on with our lives. Meanwhile, Werewolf Glendon finds a random woman walking alone at night and attacks and kills her. Now the police are all upset and gotten into it. Ames, being the nephew of the Commissioner of Scotland Yard, gets to sit in on all the police meetings because that's how that works. And he suggests that it's probably a werewolf. You know, no one believes him, because really, why would they? Yeah. We find out that Yagami did not go out and kill anyone, because, you know, he took the blossoms, and so he's been applying the cure to himself. The next night, Lisa and Paul want to go out riding by moonlight, and they've also, you know, invited Glendon. And he knows he's going to transform, and that last third bulb still hasn't bloomed yet, so he doesn't have any kind of antidote, so he can't go with them. He's pretty upset. At them going, it's pretty clear that Glendon's very jealous of Ames spending so much time with his wife. And I mean, he kind of should be, because, like, Ames is clearly making moves. On the other hand, Glendon's a dick, and Lisa clearly would rather be with Paul. She's clearly very unhappy. Yeah, and, and she's totally into having Paul around. They are making, though, like, every effort to invite Glendon out every time they go out. So really, like, the only reason his wife is spending time alone with another dude is because he keeps not coming along. So they go out riding. Glendon kind of knows that, like, if he transforms again, he's going to be a danger to, you know, those around him. So he makes his way to, like, an amusingly low-class British pub full of, like, amusing... British low-class stereotypes. Who all get named. And are characters and have... Whole conversations. Tons of dialogue. Whole scenes on their own, unrelated to the plot. And uh, he ends up boarding with an old British lady who gives him a place. And 
boy howdy does she and her friend have a lot of screen time. And he tries to lock himself into this room that he's boarding in. Uh, when the full moon comes, he transforms and he just, you know, busts Breaks out so. the window. Yeah. Glendon, as a werewolf now, makes his way to the London Zoological Gardens, attacks and kills this woman who was there making out with one of the zoo guards and trying to convince that guard to leave his wife and kids for her. So that's how you could tell she was going to die. You don't see her die, though. Just, just him chasing after her off screen. Yeah, we don't really see any violence in this movie. No. So now there's been two murders. Uh, Glendon decides that, you know, he needs obviously better measures to separate himself from everybody else. So he travels all the way to, like, his wife's family's ancestral home. Uh, his wife's parents are dead, but, like, all the servants are still there upkeeping the house, which, like... A castle, more it, like. Yeah, it's like a castle, yeah. Yeah. Which is, like, holy crap, like, the expense of, like, upkeeping a castle when, like, you aren't even living in it, and you're living in... Anyways. He locks himself in, like, the highest room of the tallest tower, basically. Meanwhile, because... Yagami only stole two Marifesa blossoms. On the third night, he transforms into a werewolf. And he kills a maid at the hotel where he was staying, which attracts the police there. All off screen. Yes, all that happens off screen. Meanwhile, Ames and Lisa have decided to also travel to Lisa's family's ancestral home because they have so many happy memories from when they were initially together there. And when they get there, that's of course when Glendon transforms breaks out of the tower, chases after Lisa, and him and Ames have a scuffle where Ames defeats Glendon by bonking him over the head with, like, a tree branch or something. And then they just run away and leave him there when, like, the movie could have ended there if they had just, you know, taken care of business at that point. But no, there's still 15 minutes left or whatever. Ames makes it back to town. He basically locks Lisa up at her house with Aunt Eddie to guard her and goes to the commissioner of Scotland Yard and says like, hey, I know who the werewolf is. It's Glendon because the werewolves are human enough that you can kind of recognize who they are. And the commissioner's like, nah, that's impossible because we had another one of these murders tonight at this hotel. So that's like, oh, maybe there's two werewolves. And they go and they check up the hotel. They figure out that Yagami had stolen the Marifesa plants from Glendon. They realize there's a connection between the two. They rush over to Glendon's house where Glendon's made it back there by way of, like, you know, the standard secret underground trap door that all scientists keep in their labs. He wants to take the third blossom because it's finally blossomed as his cure for that night. Uh, but Yagami's gotten there, too, and he wants that blossom, and he manages to get it away from Glendon and take it before Glendon can. So then Glendon, of course, transforms into a werewolf, kills Yagami, and then goes after Lisa. And the Scotland Yard shows up and shoots him. He gets a long, drawn-out, you know, I'm so sorry for everything death scene where he basically gives his blessing for Lisa and Paul to get together. And then after he dies, he, of course, transforms back into normal, as is the standard way of things, and then uh, Lisa and Paul fly back to California to go be with each other. The end. Yeah, this movie goes on way too long. Which this is movie... weird, because it's an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, there's just so much, like, fluff in it. I will say that at the very least, we get werewolves sure. in this werewolf movie. Mm -hmm. It's not a wolf blood situation, mm -hmm. but it's 40 minutes in before we get... 
at the transformation, and yeah. that's way too long. Everyone in your audience is here to see one thing, and we want to see it now. <laughs> we don't need to wait 40 minutes for this. Pacing's a huge problem in this movie, and, and you know, like you said, that first transformation happens 40 minutes into an hour and 15 minute movie. So at that point, there's 35 minutes left in the movie. Like, just think about what I said in my plot summary happens before that first transformation. Basically nothing. Tibet and a party. A couple of parties. Three party scenes in a row. Yeah. And then all of the action is squished into that last 35 minutes. And it's even more squished because there's a ton in that last 35 minutes that's just hanging around with the comic relief characters as they go about their business. Yeah. Which, by the way, the humor does not work because the joke is, haha, British people, or haha, poor British people, or haha, rich British people. It's, yeah, you get the sense that John Colton must have thought that, like, British, specifically English accents, are inherently funny. Because everyone in this movie is an English stereotype. There's the, the stuck-up British policeman. There's the incompetent British policeman. There's the stuck-up rich English women. There's the drunken, old, poor British women. There's everyone in this movie is just a comedic British stereotype. It's like an English comedy of manners stage play that happens to have a subplot about a werewolf. Yeah, and I was thinking, you know, we talked in the Invisible Man episode about how it seemed like Whale and other people were kind of, like, making fun of being British. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why did that work? But this really did not. And part of it is that we get way too much in this movie. Mm -hmm. But I feel like with Invisible Man, we were kind of in on the joke. Yeah. It wasn't like, ha-ha, look at those people, like that kid from The Simpsons. Right. It was like, hey, isn't it funny that we're kind of funny? Yeah, and I and that's because, you know, like, Whale and the cast and crew of Invisible Man were all largely English. Whereas no one who made or starred in this movie is from England. Um, with the exception of Valerie Hobson, who is from Ireland. Uh, I, that's, I'm just saying she's from the general, the US, general area, right? Um, and so, yeah, there's this weirdness about how this movie really ramps it all up. I mean, it's 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 almost Monty Python-esque, the level of, like... British that goes on. Yeah, of, of like, goofy British British people British Britishing about. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. As you kind of mentioned in the plot summary, you can definitely tell that this is post-code because it goes to great lengths to set up who's about to be attacked and murdered off-screen. Mm -hmm. Like, it was... Re Ridiculous the lengths they went to with that lady wooing the guard. Yeah, they, they really want to make sure that you know that she's a bad person. Mm -hmm. Also, the, the fact that it's Tibet, that's only in there because it's a seemingly exotic place. It doesn't have to be Tibet. It doesn't yeah. have to be in here at all. It's a weird thing, too, coming from like a modern perspective where later films make werewolves into a very Eastern European thing like vampires are. So the Tibet connection feels like a weird thing from our point of view. And like you said, it's it's unnecessary. It's just there for exotic value. Yeah. It's just it's also just not scary. No. Because if the fear is what will I do when I lose control mm -hmm. and I'm emphasizing the when, not if I lose control, mm -hmm. I don't care. Yeah. Because 
I don't care about Wilfred Glendon at all. Yeah, I think... <sighs> He's a controlling dick who's neglectful of his wife. Lisa's great, but she only starts to stand up to him once Paul enters the picture. You get the feeling that she's been unhappy in this marriage for a long time, and that Wilfred's been neglectful for a long time. It's more than just since he's been bitten by the werewolf. The other way that you can tell that this is a post-code picture is because Wilfred kind of has to be a dick. Right. I, I totally picked up on that, too. It's it's the Frankenstein dilemma, right? Like, in order for him to be this person who breaks natural laws and experiments where man was not meant to go or whatever, he has to be unsympathetic. Yeah, and even in order for Lisa and Paul to end up together and for it to be okay with the censors. Mm -hmm. But that also means that the heart is gone. The heart of why... Jekyll and Hyde works, and mm -hmm. why Wolfman, a few, like five years from now, works. Yeah. In Jekyll and Hyde, and in Wolfman, as in here, too, like I will acknowledge this, the people don't want to transform. What this movie does establish that remains, you know, canon in werewolf movies forever after this, is the idea that being a werewolf is a tragedy, in a way that being a vampire isn't really a tragedy, or at least not for a really long time in vampire media, like immediately being a werewolf's a tragedy. But you're totally right. The tragedy doesn't work if we don't like the person mm -hmm. who the tragic things is happening to. Yeah, they try avoiding transforming, um, locking themselves up. We see this in all these three movies. Yeah. In Jekyll and Hyde, Jekyll first relishes the freedom and then is horrified by his own mistreatment mm -hmm. of Ivy, specifically. Mm -hmm. In Wolfman, like, we haven't watched it yet, and my memory's also fuzzy, but the dude's a poor guy with a giant heart who's down on his luck and gets cursed. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, and they, they all do that um, <laughs> scene where, like, lock me in here and don't let me out no matter what I say or whatever. Exactly. In this film, it's an ass of a botanist <laughs> who's a bad husband, and he worries that he'll do even worse things mm -hmm. to his wife. Because he loves her. Right. But we don't even see that love. Uh, we only see the neglect and controlling behavior. So we want Lisa away. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we want Wilfred's downfall. Mm -hmm. So you're right. There's totally no tragedy, except that we spent an hour and 15 minutes of our lives watching this movie. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, I know that that's a little extreme. But, like, yeah, that's it's a little bit of how I feel. The only time we see him be loving to her is... In this kind of overbearing, like, way where he's trying to fight with Paul, basically, about it, right? Like, But he's, like, so snippy about it. Well, that's what I mean. Like, it's that kind of thing where, you know, she's like, oh, me and Paul are going to go out tonight. Do you want to come? No, I can't. Okay, well, we'll just go anyways. And then right before she's about to leave, he, like, comes up to her and, like, grabs her in his arms and gives her, like, a big, ridiculously passionate kiss as if to be reminding her, like, see, I love you, before she goes out, right? Yeah, but she doesn't react to it. She just no. is there. And I don't know if that's, like, part of this, a thing with the censors where she can't be passionately reacting to it. Yeah, you can't have passionate kisses. But you definitely get the sense that she's just kind of, like, grinning and bearing with it. For sure. I totally agree with you that the central problem of this movie is that Glendon isn't likable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that, totally. And it, it is like a weird 
trap, right? That they've like written themselves into because he he can't be likable. Yeah. But by making him not likable, the story doesn't work. Or at the very least, I don't care about the story. Right. Right. Like, I'm not invested, except like, for Lisa to get out. And it's not just that he's, like, like I know you're you're really focused on him being kind of a neglectful husband, but, like, he's he's a terrible person all around, right? Because, yeah. like, this one guy comes to him and is like, hey, you and I, we're both werewolves. It's a tragedy. We're going to hurt people, if not. Give me these flowers and I can make us a cure. And he's like, no, science, my experiments, murdered her. Why? Why would you do that except to be an asshole? Yeah, um, totally. He also comes off, obviously, as, like, kind of racist. Um, but, you know, he's, like, an upper-class British person. So I feel like that kind of goes without saying. But it should still be said. Overall, things were bland. Like, you made a comment in the opening credits that it was just, like, a very bland backdrop. It's just, like, this, like, cloud-painted thing with mm-hmm. the text over it. And just, it feels bland from the get-go. The acting is okay, but overall it's pretty bland. It's like they tried to spice it up with these like humorous stereotypes, but it just came off being like, ugh, more of this. The only part of this movie that's kind of like, oh, that's neat, is the idea of the plant into the folklore, mm. but also this, the special effects, the transformation. Because we get a couple of different transformations. They kind of do a Jekyll and Hyde thing when he's transforming in that... Uh, hotel room. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of it. There's nothing else for, with this movie. The big sense I get watching it is that no one making this movie was interested in making a horror movie. Yeah. You know, it's not just ineptitude, it's this feeling that they sort of looked down upon the genre they were working in. Um, like I said, the, the script seems interested in everything but the horror, right? Like... <laughs> <laughs> they just emphasize everything else, like the humor, the drama, the love triangle Everyone's Everyone's, like, weird, overwritten backstories. Like, there's so many parts of this movie where people stop to tell you about their histories with each other. Like, as I said, as if they were characters in, like, an English novel. One of those English novels about rich people who all have long backstories and histories and relationships with each other, like a handful of dust, but instead of the weird jungle fever ending of that movie, this movie has a werewolf in it. Like, that's <laughs> that's what this is. Um, the writer, he seems much more interested in how many comedic English stereotypes he can work into a single scene than anything approaching horror. There isn't so much comic relief in this horror movie as there's horror relief in this comedy. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Colton spends the vast majority of the script on either fussy upper-class people or comedic lower-class people doing shtick than on anything to do with werewolves. Mm-hmm. The director, um, Stuart Walker, it's clear that he knows horror movies need to have shadows, but other than that, he seems to have no creative ideas about style or storytelling of his own. Like, I would, I would call this very workmanlike in terms of its direction. I mean, that is how you described him in the opening, right? He's a working man, so that makes a lot of sense. Like, it's superior to a Poverty Row film, only in that there's time and money as befits the higher budget to make things look better. But there isn't any flair to anything. It's it's sort of like Black Moon in that it's a movie that looks like a real movie, but that's about it. 
the plant stuff was kind of cool. I know I kind of mentioned it earlier, but like where like you could see they rigged up like this fake flower to bloom in mm-hmm. like real time. Yeah, some of the special effects are cool. Yeah, we got to see like a Venus flytrap, a, a plant that eats mice <laughs> and gobbles it up and has like these weird tentacles because it's like it's the it's like Poison Ivy's pet from a Batman episode. Yeah, like that stuff is kind of neat. The thing is, is that like. All the stuff that's kind of cool in this movie you can lay at the feet of either, like, Jack Pierce or John Fulton doing effects. Yeah. No one else, really. Which makes sense. Yeah. What I find kind of interesting about this movie, if anything, is looking at how this movie depicts werewolf lore in Mm. being the first real werewolf movie. I can definitely see why the critics all compared it to Jekyll and Hyde. A hundred percent. Like, it's very... Like, the stiff upper-classness of it. Mm -hmm. The fact that he's, like, a scientist with a lab, and he changes back and forth, and there's some agent that he has to take to either change or not change. In terms of the werewolf lore elements, you've got transformation by light of the full moon, contracting werewolfery by being bitten by a werewolf, the idea of killing what the werewolf loves most, I don't think it's as explicitly, like, a rule in later movies, but it's certainly a thing that's part of the tragedy in later movies. It just always sort of tends to happen that way. Yeah, well, because that's the explicit root of the fear of what will I do when I'm at my worst. Mm -hmm. Um, So those have all kind of stuck around, and like we said, really establishes is the idea, in terms of narrative, that it's a tragedy to be a werewolf. Right, which we already talked about. Yeah. Then the things that are different, uh, like you said, you've got the plant-based antidote, which is is different. Um, additionally, this werewolf can be killed by totally regular bullets. He can be knocked unconscious by a blow to the head from a branch. And he seems very mannish when yeah. he's transformed. Yeah, the line between man and beast is very unclear. Like we said, he takes the time to you know put his hat and coat on before he leaves the house. I think that really comes from the fact that they were taking Jekyll and Hyde as their model more than anything else. So, you know, he does snarl and crouch and... Howl. Howl and lunge at people and stuff like that. But it's definitely more Hyde-like. You know, he's fully dressed in his... still in, he's, he's always in his proper suit, no matter what form he's in. His clothes don't rip or anything, right? Yeah. Yeah, ultimately, I think just this movie is... Um, dull. It, it's dull. It's derivative. And bland. It, it's bland. It's unscary, like you said. It's unscary because it spends so much time on comedy, which would be fine if the comedy was funny, which it isn't, because it just goes on. It's just the sound of these people's voices, what we're supposed to find funny. And in addition to the lead character being unsympathetic, frankly, almost everyone else is too. Lisa is sympathetic because, you know, she's trapped in this loveless marriage. Maybe for an audience of the time, in the 30s, she'd be a little bit unsympathetic just because of how encouraging she is to Paul before, you know, she's free of that marriage. Like, a proper married woman shouldn't be, like, leading on some other man. Mm. Um, Paul's not very sympathetic just because, again, in that 30s context, while he is trying to get her out of this loveless marriage, like, he is putting the moves on a married woman who had earlier turned him down. That, from, like, a 30s point of view, is maybe a little bit scummy. All of the friends and family are annoying and terrible. (laughs) Even, like, I say what you're saying about Paul, but he's also not given enough to, like, really have anything there. Yeah. He doesn't have much of a personality. No, his personality is that he's not Wilfred Glendon. Yeah. 
all the like random ancillary characters are really either unsympathetic because they're terrible or unsympathetic because they're annoying. The only sympathetic person in this movie, um, other than Lisa, is Dr. Yagami, the other werewolf. And what bothers me about that is I get this weird feeling like maybe this movie thinks he's the bad guy. Yeah, they keep trying to paint him that way. Because he's the one who's breaking into the lab and stealing the flowers so that Wilfred can't get them. And he's the one who comes in at the end and is like, Haha, Wilfred, I've stolen your last bulb. Now I will be cured, not you. And then fights with him. And Wilfred's supposed to be, like, ostensibly our protagonist. But, like, Yagami's this guy who's been a werewolf forever and has lived this tragic life and is just begging and pleading with this Englishman to give him some fucking flowers. And he's like, no! He's the only sympathetic person in this movie, and, you know, he gets killed for his troubles. And you'd think that the reason there's, like, eight to ten characters that you don't need in this movie is because some of them are going to be werewolf chow, but the only people who die in this whole movie, other than Wilfred at the end and Yagami in the fight, are the two nameless blonde women. It's this weird kind of um, classism where mm-hmm. upper-class women are threatened, lower-class women are killed. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, it's a code thing. We right away identified it's a code thing. But it's a kind of weird byproduct because if only bad people can be killed, it kind of makes the monsters seem all right. <laughs> right? Like... Like, if, if the monster, it's, it's this weird thing where, like, the monsters threaten people we like, but only kill people we don't like. It turns the monsters into, like, Frank Castle, where they're going around, like, dis- killing the, the dregs of society or whatever. I, I see where you're coming from. I don't think this film goes to that point. No, I'm just saying that's, like, a... A that's potential like, thing. That's later. the logical conclusion of this, like, trend. Yeah, except that the monster needs to be bad as well. Right, that's I, it's just this weird contradiction that you get when you have to be straight-jacketed to a particular set of morality in your story. I think it's more concerning that the lower class is inherently bad. Right. Right? Like, sure, you have that woman who is, like, telling the guard to lead his wife. I understand why she's shown as being bad. But, like... The woman who's walking home alone? Yeah, her... Like, it, she looked like she was leaving work late, yeah, you know? Yeah, that's her crime. She's a woman walking home alone at night. Yeah. How dare she? How dare she? Do you want to move on to ranking? Yes, please. All right. Clearly this movie's better than Wolf Blood for many a reason. Mm-hmm. So then I started comparing it to some adaptations of Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, I think that makes sense to compare it to some Jekyll and Hyde's. So my ceiling is 38 with the 1920 John Barrymore Jekyll and Hyde. Wow. And my floor is the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde with King Baggett. That's a pretty small range, Sarah. Yeah, but I figured, you know, King Baggett jumps at people to scare them. Wilfred uh, runs at people to scare them. I think it's a pretty fair comparison. I had a much higher range than you. I was more looking around the middle of the list, largely because my feeling about this movie was it wasn't successful at being scary, primarily because the people making it weren't attuned to the genre. Flip side, the movie at least is, you know, a competent, well-made film. The people making the movie are competent filmmakers. They just don't get horror. So I was looking, to me, around the middle of the list. My range was 25 to 31. 
to me, this felt like not as good as Dr. X, for sure, but potentially maybe better than Mark of the Vampire, just because Mark the Vampire, you know, has that reveal where it was all not really vampires and all that kind of stuff that is really a big letdown. Making my way down the list from there, um, I sort of ended up at 31 because I thought even if this movie's better made than The Vampire Bat, you could maybe argue it below that because its ideas aren't as interesting as The Vampire Bats. So that's where I was kind of looking. But I definitely see what you're saying. Between my floor and your ceiling is a hard stretch of the list to judge because it's a lot of like weird comedies and other bizarre things. Yeah. What makes Genuina a better film than this for you? It's style. Like, yeah, it's ripping off the German expressionism in Caligari, but at least it's doing something. Yeah, I mean, it's also the exact same people who made Caligari. So if anyone's going to rip it off, like, maybe they're allowed, right? Fair enough, yeah. And yeah, it's hacked to pieces in the editing, but... Each person in it has its their own thing going on in the sense of, like, you know, there's Genuina who's going to tempt you away. There's the hairdresser apprentice who's going to, like, be lured away or whatever. You have the actors you need. You don't need all of these other excess amount of people. Yeah. I mean, everyone in Werewolf of London has their own thing. It's just none of it's important to the plot. Yeah, I should be clear. They have their own purpose. Yes. <laughs> and part to play. Yeah. And they play them. Yeah, because everybody in Werewolf of London gets, like, a long speech explaining who they are and what their backstory was going back to the olden days. <laughs> and kind of like with what you said, too, where, like, with so many people, you'd think some of them would be eaten or something or serve some some kind of purpose, and they don't. Even Aunt Eddie just gets kind of frightened, you know? Yeah. She doesn't actually serve a purpose. No, there's no reason for at least ten people in the cast to be in this movie. So if Genuine is better because at least it has a better handle on economy of storytelling, um, what makes the bat better than Werewolf of London? Uh, I think it's interesting to compare the two because they're both early progenitors of this subgenre. Right. The bat with the old dark house trope and werewolf of London with werewolf movies. Right. I mean, I, I was a big fan of the bat, yes. as I recall, and I liked how they managed to uh, convey both the horror and the comedy, and everything also has its purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, everything that is set up has its payoff. Yeah, there's a lot of extra characters in the bat, but they all are kind of there for a reason. Yeah. Um, in terms of at least some sort of structural sense of either they're there to make you think maybe they're the bat, or they're there to distract you from something at a key moment, or whatever. Mm -hmm. They both did have a lot of talking. Like, the bat, I'll say talking, because it was title cards, but um, the talking still had a bit of a, a purpose, because it would be, like, to mislead you uh, with who is the bat, who's not. What's funny about the two of them is that horror-comedy mix, because... You know, The Bat, I feel like, is from that era when there was no straight horror movies, right? All American horror movies were kind of horror comedies, so it's got that mix. You know, whereas this movie, which is from, you know, nine years later, is from a time when horror is a real genre on its own, but there is still 
you know, we do still see comic relief in horror as an I the idea being to relieve relief. you, yeah, from the horror with comedy. Um and like I said, there's so much of this in this movie. It's it's more like the horror is the relief from the comedy. Thinking of it that way, like which I guess what I mean is which do you prefer? The comedy movie with horror elements that the bat supposedly is versus the horror movie with comedy elements that Werewolf of London supposedly is. Like, which does that better? I, I don't really know how to answer your question. Which do you... I guess, I guess I just mean, like, in terms of the horror comedy balance, which do you prefer? Or which do you think is more effective as a horror movie in terms of the balance? You know, I, I would, again, say The Bat because it utilized shadow and mood setting in yeah. a way that this movie really doesn't have. That's true. Roland West, for all his other flaws, was at least a very stylish director. Yes. So, is it is it sort of the same case then for The Bat Whispers? I mean, is The Bat Whispers stylish enough and with a good enough blend of horror and comedy to beat out Werewolf of London? The Bat Whispers, you know, in addition to being the talkie, also didn't use the full bat costume for the mm -hmm. bat, right? It just had, like, that weird... Ski mask. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, there's a reason why Bat Whispers is ranked lower than the bat on here, because um, it faltered in places. But uh, I remember you mentioning how, like, you really liked how they used sound mm -hmm. to support the feeling of horror, um, especially because sound was so new. Yeah. For it at the time. This movie, if I think about how it used sound, just the howling, I guess. Yeah. That's really it. Yeah. Okay. So we're thinking Bat Whispers is, is, is superior just on a craft level. Yes. Okay. So I have a really hard time. I think Spanish Dracula has pacing problems sort of similar to this movie in terms of scenes that go on too long. Okay. That being said, Spanish Dracula is at least still interested in being horror. Like, for all its faults, it still is a horror movie instead of a comedy of manners with a werewolf subplot. Yeah. I suppose you thought Sealed Room was better just because, you know, Sealed Room is one, two scenes long, and one of those scenes is watching two people suffocate. Yeah. Um, even on a statistical level that's 50% <laughs> of horror versus this movie's 30%. <laughs> I want to say like 15. <laughs> so what makes the first 1910 Frankenstein better than this movie? Do you remember when we watched it and we made like that Fight Club reference? Because, right. Because uh, he is Frankenstein. Or, yeah. Frankenstein looks in the mirror and the creature's there. Yeah. He like is that. the monster. The whole time for some, like, <laughs> which makes no sense in the, like, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think that. it was just like a visual gag rather than any kind of meaning behind it. But to me, that implies a level of, like, like this added level of psychology that I don't <laughs> think you get. Sorry, I feel like I'm reaching for straws right now, but, like, I think. So you're, yeah, you're <laughs> saying that, 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 like, 10 minute adaptation of Frankenstein, because it thought about. The idea of the monster being a dark reflection of his creator put more thought into the psychology of its characters than this movie. Yes. Yeah, I'll buy that. <laughs> so then is the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde with Barry Moore 
better just because it's actually Jekyll and Hyde as opposed to a Jekyll and Hyde ripoff, or what's the reason that's better? That movie had the same kind of problem where it was like really a long ways into the running time before we saw the first transformation and before any action started happening. It, it also had the same problem of like unnecessary characters with unnecessary subplots. Yeah, I feel like the acting in it is a bit better. Like even if you want to just compare John Barrymore with this Hull Haskett. Henry Hull. <laughs> Henry, with Henry Hull, John Barrymore is a much better actor. We, we talked a lot about, with this 1920 Jekyll and Hyde, of that one scene where Hyde is approaching either the girl or her dad. It's both. There's two different scenes and it's both. Yeah. So that was like the key scary moment in that film. Right. Probably a comparable scary moment in this film is maybe the end climax, if not the very first transformation night where he's sneaking up on Aunt Eddie and we have, like, the shadow over her. Yeah, I I see what you mean, though, in that the stuff that tries to be scary in that 1920 Jekyll and Hyde is, was scarier for its time than what's in this movie. Like, yeah. it's similar shit in both movies where it's just kind of like the monster looming at someone. But in 1920, that was scary. In 1935, it's like, hey, man, we just watched Bride of Frankenstein. Like, we've seen Black Cat. What you doing? Yeah, what is this? Like, you know what this movie actually feels like the most? Mm. So, you know, we've, we've said over and over again that the crew didn't know or understand horror, right? So I wonder if what it was was, like, their understanding of horror was out of date because they didn't really care about the genre. In the same way that, like, if you asked a middle-aged white person what rap is, they would start going, like, you know, my name is Ben, and I'm here to say. And it's like rap hasn't really been like that since, like, the 80s. Their touchstones are out of date because they don't care. So, you know, this is the I went to the hat store of horror movies, right? Sure. I think where I want to put this, then, is below the unknown and above the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde. Because the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde, um, that's not the King Baggett one. That's oh. the um, James Cruz one. Which one? Oh, 1913. That's the one 19... year off. I, yeah. was, I was close. Uh, the 1913 Jekyll and Hyde's way down at number 49. Mm. Yeah, I definitely meant the 1912 one. Yeah, when so... I was giving my range. Yeah. Um, so the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde is, you know, by 1935 standards, barely a movie. But I think the unknown, you know, again, has a better sense of, like, human psychology and character dynamics and drama than this movie. The Unknown has, like, three, four characters in it, you know? Yeah. This movie has, like, 20. Yeah, and even just comparing Lon Chaney Sr. and his performance as Alonzo the Armless uh, with Henry Hull as Wilfred and um, demonstrating that psychology, demonstrating those, like tensions of like performing one th like uh, uh the character performing being good versus being bad yeah all right so uh the white guy rap of horror movies werewolf of london from 1935 directed by stuart walker enters the list at number 40 and we are now up to 57 films ranked on the list in this our 50th episode Good job, Ben. High five. 
If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to other episodes, an appeals box where you can submit uh, concerns, appeals, questions, suggestions, anything of the sort, and also where you'll find our YouTube playlist to view other films. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can always contact us through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. You can also find our podcast through its RSS feed uh, using whatever podcatcher you prefer. One of the ways you can help out the show is by leaving us ratings and reviews on those services. The more positive ratings, positive reviews that the show gets, the easier it is for new audience members to find the show. Another way that you could really help us out is by letting other people know about the show. Uh, If you have friends who are interested in old Hollywood or the horror genre or any Venn diagram overlap of the two, uh, let them know about our show. What are we watching next week, Ben? You remember how The Black Cat was a movie? Yes. And it was, like, fairly successful? Yeah, it was real good. And its basic sort of premise was let's take Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and throw them in the movie with an Edgar Allan Poe story title, but really nothing to do with the plot of the Edgar Allan Poe story? Yeah. So you know how Hollywood likes to repeat things that have done well? So our next film is 1935's The Raven. Excellent. Starring Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Does Bela Lugosi play the raven? (laughs) You'll just have to wait and find out. (laughs) Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.